the church, the Reformation, the word remains. And I want to thank Pastor Brandon for the assignment because he laid out the, the um, five steps that we're going through the five uh, church history periods. And so looking into this was a little extra work and challenge, but it really cemented into me something that I knew, but it really caused me to grow. And so I, I appreciate that. So a day like today, 500 years ago, the remnant of the church was actually hidden in the middle of obscurity at that time. But then a light burst through the darkness, and an Austrian monk named Martin Luther nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel his 95 Thesis. And it marked the beginning of the return of the Word of God to the people, the Holy Scriptures. And so we've been looking at this survey through church history, seeing what we could learn to do, the good stuff, and what we could not continue to do, the bad stuff. Uh, the church that we often studied about was the one in the book of Acts, and we didn't really cover that one too much. I'll mention it a little bit tonight. But then we looked at the church from 100 to 200. In those years, we saw that the church was a, a church of patience. It, it changed a little bit in the way things were happening. And then from 300 to about the 1500s, the cathedral, the Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages came in to being. And then tonight we're going to look at from 1450 to uh, 1650, the word or what we would call the Reformation is to, going to take place in the church. So the church that we study a lot in the book of Acts was a church that began with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And on that first day, 3,000 people were saved. It was amazing. Disciples who, had, who were cowards and who had ran away and hid became great preachers almost like overnight and instantly. It was an exciting thing. People were being added to the church all the time. Uh, the apostles decided to serve the word of God, and they picked out for themselves some other men to help with the ministry. And one of those young men, Stephen, was a person who became a great preacher by just recanting the history of the scriptures, and he planted that seed in the heart of Saul, who later became Paul. The eunuch was on his way back to Ethiopia, and he got saved and baptized right there. The gospel spreads. Churches are planted everywhere. And we read in the, about that earliest church that it turned the world upside down. Actually, the city fathers of a city wanted to stop people from coming into the town because they'd heard what had been going on in that early church. And then the church from 100 to 200, we were, we were taught that the church was the church of patience. Um, the church was under great persecution during that time. The, the emperors of Rome were pushing on and it was hard. And so there was some secrecy to it. Things were done in a different way. They met in homes. Uh, they had a sponsor who would come along and then there would be like a pre-discipleship time, a time of talking about what the walk of the Lord was all about, an examination period, and then a, a very formal baptism. Um, effective, yes, but slow, but the way of patience. Then we saw the church from 300 to 1400 A.D. Uh, Constantine had a vision, conquer in the name of Christ. And the same church of Rome that persecuted the, the patient church now embraces the church, and they come together. What you would think on the, on the natural side would be a great thing for the church to have happen, but it didn't turn out to be that way because of the politics that came into play. Now they were leaving home, they were meeting in places, they were building churches and cathedrals, much more mixing with the In 476, Rome, the world power falls. The Middle Age begins, also sometimes called the Dark Ages. 
And that term traditionally kind of employs the difference between light and darkness. There was a light, now a time of darkness, but another light is coming, if you can kind of think of that imagery. The darkness was so different at that time. During the Middle Ages, Europe developed a feudal system. Kings gave land to lords for protection. Lords gave uh, money and food to the knights so that they could be the military protection. Then the knights prov uh, were provided, were protected the land for the serfs and uh, who gave the food up the food chain. So this, there was this whole structure there. But the church had a similar structure. They had the popes. There were popes in those days. They had the cardinals. They had the bishops, archbishops and bishops, and then the priests. And so they had a whole structure of people too. And these people kind of gave authority back and forth to each other. So a king and a cardinal, they'd kind of be in cahoots and they would do things. So that's the way the church was working. But during this same period of time, this 1,200 years or so, one of the things that began in that first church existed and stayed true throughout and that was the monasteries. The monasteries, and some monasteries still exist today, and we thank God for those. So Constantinople, uh, today Istanbul, became the capital of the Byzantine realm, and that empire remained until 1453, when it was conquered by the Ottomans. The Byzantine Empire dated itself actually to the Roman Empire and said that it was a splinter group that came out of Rome and um, that they, they had kind of carried that on. And that brings us to what we call the Reformation. But another great event was happening at the same time of the Reformation. It's called the Renaissance. It's the awakening up again of thinking. And during the Renaissance, these are kind of the things that were, were being done and the, and the way that things were happening. The culture, this was the culture that bridged from the Dark Ages into the modern time. A rediscovery of Greek philosophy of Plato and Socrates the rebirth of humanism of Rome was taking place, and the reawakening of intellectual discovery was now taking place. So that brings us to the Reformation. Let me give you a little bit of background about it. And we're going to talk a little bit about Martin Luther and about the things that he went through <clears throat> and what he accomplished. But it was amazing how the Word of God had remained through all of this period of time. We're going, to, we're going to take a look at that because that's one of the things that we are still studying and learning from and carrying around with us, the Word of God. So the church was a big deal at the time of the Reformation. Lots of time was spent in church, going to church, going to the different services and, and paying attention to church, and a lot of money was being given to the church. But the clergy had become very popular, and I learned a new word anti-clericalism, okay? So there was actually an ism for being against the clergy, and there were people that were against the, the clergy because many of them were immoral, drinking, gambling, and very illiterate. So the clergy was in a place where there was just a lot of pressure against that. 1300s were the worst of the years during that time. Uh, there were patriarchs at that time, so there were multiple popes. It talks about, in one of the things I was reading, the great uh, papal schism. Three popes, Gregory, Bene Gregory the 13th, Benedict the 13th, and John the 23rd. They were having a dispute over greed, taxation, and indulgences. And we'll talk a little bit about indulgences. But in the middle of the 1300s, John Wyc Wycliffe was born in England in 1320. He studied at Oxford, 
became a professor of theology, and his literacy was alarming. They said he was so smart in the scriptures and so well taught that people were amazed at what they did. And so he was passing on again the value of the word of God. And then in 1517, Pope Leo X had the most famous of all the indulgences, the one that caused Martin Luther to write his 95 theses. Taxes for the building of of, uh, sanctuaries in Rome. This was what was happening. A percentage could be kept by the kings and the lords. France, England, and Spain jumped on it. So they would collect taxes from all the people, take out their portion, and send the rest to the the Vatican and to to the church in Rome. By this time, the church had consolidated, and there was just the Orthodox Church, um, in Rome at the time was the head of the Catholic Church. Now the word Catholic means universal, so I'm not really speaking about necessarily the Catholic Church that we know. There's a Catholic Church that's spelled with a small c, and there's a Catholic Church that's spelled with a capital C. We're all part of the universal church, but we're not all part of the Roman Catholic Church, and so that's what was happening at this time. So the indulgences were a piece of parchment that a pope or cardinal would sign, And he would offer that substitutionally of a virtuous act. If you did something virtuous, you could get an indulgence and you could use it to cover a sin somewhere else. If you didn't have any virtuous acts, then for a certain fee, the the person in charge in the church could give you an indulgence and he would use up one of the ones from the apostles or the saints that had gone before you. He would say, well, you know, so-and-so, you know, Peter did this good thing, so I'll give you an indulgence on his behalf. That'll cost you a certain fee, and that was a tax that was being taken in. So this was the thing that just was, was just unbelievable, and they couldn't take it anymore. So Martin Luther is born in 1483. He lives to 1546, and he's the most famous of all the reformers. Most of his thoughts and most of his writings came from his personal religious struggles as a German university professor. So he had um, joined the Augustan Friars. He was ordained a priest in 1507, received his doctorate of theology at the University of Wittenberg, and became a professor of scriptures there. But it was Luther's study of Paul's letters that led him to the belief that salvation and justification and righteousness come through faith, which is the free gift of God's grace with absolutely no human effort, and that God's word is revealed only in Scripture, not in any tradition of the church, or not by any edict of a pope or other church leader. So Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses. Only God can give salvation, not a priest. Inward penance must be accomplished with a suitable change in lifestyle. Only God can forgive. The Pope can only reassure people that God will do it. Even a pastor, I can't do anything about your forgiveness, but I can reassure you that God is faithful. Jesus is faithful. His atonement on the cross is a faithful substitute for your sins. I can reassure you of that, but I can't give that to you. An indulgence will not save a man. A dead soul cannot be saved by an indulgence. It is nonsense to teach that a dead soul in purgatory can be saved by money. Uh, People who believe that indulgences will let them live in salvation will always be damned, along with those who teach it. (laughs) 
A Christian who gives to the poor or lends to those in need is doing better in God's eyes than one who buys forgiveness. I like that one. A Christian should buy what is necessary for life and not waste his money on indulgences. Christians should be taught that they do not need an indulgence. The main treasure of the church should be the gospel and the grace of God. Christians must follow Christ at all costs. Let Christians experience problems if they must and overcome them rather than live a false life based on present teachings of the church. So, interesting to get those if you want it. Copy of it, I can probably get it for you, but it's in modern English. So, so Martin Luther did that, and, um, you know, they sent it to the church leaders, who sent it to the Pope, who called for the diet of worms, and that's not what it is, okay? Uh, it's the diet word, the word means assembly, and it's the assembly in Worms, Germany, where Luther appeared before the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor, Charles V. Now, how do you get to be a Holy Roman Emperor of Germany? Okay, That's because of the relationship between the hierarchy of the church and the, and the kings and the, and, the, and the nobles and the knights and all the stuff that was going on during the, uh, the uh, Dark Ages. So anyhow, uh, Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V., um, Martin Luther was uh, labeled a heretic and he was excommunicated from the church. And based on this attempt to reform the Catholic Church, it gave birth to the Protestants. And the word literally means those who protest. So that's what we are. And the church was reformed. Some of us have observed a life that was so radically changed by the Bible that it changed our lives because we couldn't believe that that person was changed. And when we asked him the questions, it was because of the influence of the Bible. So the bottom line for us in church history that I've seen so far through all of this is that the word remains. The word of God remains. So turn with me to Romans chapter one. Let's look at the passage that changed the life of Martin Luther and some others. Verses one through six, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his, holy, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among the na- all the nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So in verse 1, we see that Paul was called to be an apostle or a messenger. He was separated, he was set apart to God's message and to the gospel of God, the good news. Romans actually is the gospel of God. Other New Testament letters focus on churches, their problems, things that they need to correct, things they need to do, and, it's, and the challenges that they're having. But Romans focuses more on God. There's more about God in this book. God is the most important word in this book. Even, everything Paul touches in the letter, he relates to God, back to, back to, to, to God. When Paul... When Paul is saying things about righteousness, about grace, about justification, it all comes back to the tremendous concentration on God. 
Let me give you an example of that. The word God occurs 153 times in the book. An average of every 46 words is the name, is the word God. It's more frequently than, it's used more frequently in the book of Romans than it is anywhere else in the New Testament. So in verse 2, Paul recognizes that the gospel was promised by the scriptures, which he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scripture. Remember that Martin Luther is studying this, and he's coming to understand now that the scriptures promised the salvation of the Lord by the prophets and the scripture. The gospel isn't something new, wasn't something new to Martin Luther, it's not something new to us. It's not a clever innovation of man. In Paul's world and Martin Luther's world, and in our world, people were looking for something new. Remember that Luther was in the time of the Renaissance, and the Renaissance was this rebirth of thinking, and people were getting something new. Even though they were going back to Plato, and they were going back to Socrates in the Greek world, and they were going back to the humanism of Rome, they were still looking for something new and something different. People liked new things, and people in the church today like new things. We we go from sometimes church to church because of new worship styles. Sometimes we go from church to church because of different speaking styles. Sometimes we go to different churches because they're teaching topically. Sometimes we go to a church because they're teaching through the Bible. So we go to different places. We're sometimes caught up with looking for something new. But, but Martin Luther came to the place where he said the gospel was promised by the scriptures. And we should realize that, that the gospel of God is, has been promised to us since the beginning. It's clear that the gospel was concerning God's Son, and Jesus Christ. In verse 3, it says, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So there's no confusion with Paul, as he's laying this letter out, that Martin Luther's reading, that we're reading tonight, that the gospel deals with Jesus Christ and His life and what His story is all about for us. In verse 4, it declares or confirms to be, that to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. So right away, Paul immediately brings up the resurrection of the dead of Jesus Christ, proof positive that the words of God spoken through Jesus as he walked this earth were true, the power of the resurrection. And then in verse 5, through him we receive grace. Through him we have received grace and apostleship. The gospel impacts our lives. Every one of us that confess Jesus Christ as Lord have had our life impacted by the gospel. You know, it isn't an interesting theory or philosophy. It is life-changing good news. That's what the gospel is, and that's what we need to do. So the word remained through all of this. And in August of 1513, a monk was lecturing on a book of Psalms in a seminary, but his inner life was in turmoil. In his studies, he came across Psalms 31, verse 1. So Psalms 31, verse 1, In you, O Lord, I have put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. The passage confused that monk, Martin Luther, said, how could God's righteousness do anything but condemned him to hell and righteous punishment for his sins? And that's probably the way the church had explained it, that the righteousness of God was so pure and so perfect that when you look at it, you realize your shortcomings. You realize that you're not uh, capable. You realize that you have 
more sin. And Luther kept thinking about that as he comes to these next verses that we're going to look at in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. How could that be? Because it says in verse uh, 17, For it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the monk went on to say this about this particular passage in Romans. Night and day I pondered this until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is the righteousness whereby through grace and his sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Therefore I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through an open door into paradise this passage of Romans became to me a gateway into heaven. Martin Luther was born again. The Reformation began first in his heart, then in many, and today in ours. Praise God. Martin Luther praised the book of Romans. Here's what he said. It is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel, the absolute embodiment of the gospel. If we look at God and we see his righteousness and we are pulled away from our relationship with him because he's so perfect and we're not so perfect, then we haven't got the right picture. He is giving us his righteousness. We are justified just as if we have never sinned. You stand before him, your sins, everything's been accounted for. And so you need to put on his righteousness. And that's what Luther came to grips with compared to looking at the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and saying, oh, poor little me. We say, wow, I'm, look at how blessed I am because I can claim it, because I can take it and take a hold of it. Most of us haven't quite got there yet, but we're on a journey to get there, to realize that we are justified, we're redeemed. And it's, and we're, you know, it's, it's hard for me to imagine myself in a white robe just floating around and, every, and doing everything perfect. I mean, that's really tough for me, but that's the way it is when you come to grips with the fact that that's the position of what's been given to us, that's what Martin Luther was coming to. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Powerful words, important words. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek for it is the righteousness of God is revealed, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The whole theme of Romans, the whole book is right here, the righteousness of God as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I like the way Paul starts by saying, I'm not ashamed of it. You know, it reveals Paul's heart. You know, we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel as we proclaim it, as we, as we talk to others about our relationship with Jesus Christ. But think of Paul. He's in a sophisticated city, probably the most sophisticated city of the world at that time. He was in Rome. Some people might be embarrassed if you were taking a message centered on a crucified Jewish carpenter and you were, and that was embraced by the lowest classes of people because that's basically who the Christians were at that time. But Paul was not ashamed. You remember what it says about Jesus in Hebrews uh, chapter 12. It says, um, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance 
the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand on the throne of God. He wasn't embarrassed of his job either, of his being about his father's business. So Paul and Jesus both said that. And then it says it it's, is the power. It's the power to lift up. It's the power to save. It is the power of God for salvation. Do you know at the time that Paul was there, Rome thought it had all the power. They had great roads. They had great armies. They had conquered. Power is the one thing that Rome was boasting about. So why wouldn't Paul talk about power when he writes to the Roman saints, when he writes to the people in Rome, to talk to them. So you think you have power? Well, the gospel is the power for salvation. The Greece, Greece might have its philosophy, and that was still around at the time of, of Paul, but Rome had its power. But you know what? The Romans soon realized that despite all their power, the Romans, like all men, were powerless to make themselves righteous before God. No matter how much we think we're worth, no matter how much we think we can do it on our own strength, none of us have the ability to make ourselves righteous before God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes us righteous. The gospel's power for salvation comes to everyone who believes. God will not withhold salvation from anyone. Responding by believing is the only requirement. It's a free gift of God. I think in verse 17, it's important that we understand what is the righteousness of God. And I briefly mentioned it before. But for the non-believer, the righteousness of God, the purity of who he is, will convict you of sin. If you look at God in all of his righteousness and you don't have Jesus Christ in the mix, then you're going to be a pretty condemned person because you cannot stand up against his righteousness. But for the believer, it is his righteousness. We have what has been given to us who put their trust in Jesus. We have his righteousness and we need to wear it. We need to appropriate it. We need to take it as ours. Righteousness means that God treats the sinner as if he had not been a sinner at all. It's like justification. You know, you're justified is the process, and you, you've been justified. It's just as if you've never sinned. Righteousness is the result of that. That's what you are as the, as the justification is taking place. One of the commentators, a gentleman by the name of Lenski, said this about Martin Luther. It was the happiest day in Luther's life when he discovered that God's righteousness, as used in Roman, means God's verdict of righteousness upon or, or for the believer. So now, how do I declare to you that you have the freedom to accept God's righteousness and live in that righteousness and be assured that you're righteous before God? when I know some of you guys on this side messed up today or yesterday or last week. Now, I know you guys probably haven't messed up yesterday or today or last week, but the week before last, it's been reported that you've messed up. But how do I get you to believe that that's not the way we live in Christ? 
we have been saved, we have been redeemed, we are justified, we have his righteousness. Yes, the Holy Spirit's going to come along and convict us of those things that we did that wasn't right. The just shall live by faith. You are all justified. The gospel proclaims you are justified. How should you live? By faith. Not by a set of rules, not by a set of regulations, not by church attendance, not by daily devotional reading, check-off sheets here and there and all the stuff that you could do. But you should live the life by faith. And I believe if we do that as a church, if we do that as individuals, we'll want to be in his word. We'll want to come together for fellowship. We'll want to just meditate on the word of God. And we'll want to learn to receive his righteousness and his justification and all those things. Because sometimes, quite frankly, I think that we can get to a place where we ask ourselves, man, you know, how can, how can I call myself a Christian? How can I do this when I lose faith? When I, when I struggle over uh, lack of provision, when I struggle over um, poor relationships, when uh, things go just horrible at work, when I snap at a kindergartner. You ever snap at a kindergartner? <laughs> no, she probably doesn't. But, uh, but, but you, you, you have fifth grade? Sixth grade. You ever snap at a sixth grader? <laughs> so sixth graders are tough. Sixth, seventh, and eighth grade are tough. But you know, sometimes we, we just act out in the flesh, in our, in our own nature, things that, you know, something pops out of our mouth to people that we have close relationships with. And we, we come back on ourselves and we say, oh man, how, why do I even go to Bible study? Why do I even read my Bible? That's not what it's about. What Martin Luther discovered is that the righteousness of Jesus Christ because of the gospel of God is something that he can take a hold of, he can appropriate it, and it's his no matter what. And that's what we have to come to learn for. So the word remains through this whole thing of church history that we've been studying. The word of God has been there. Monks have been studying it in their monasteries. A remnant has been studied. John Wycliffe in 1300 was studying it at Oxford. So all over throughout the world at the time, there was always the remnant studying the word of God, getting to know the word of God, and understanding that the word of God remains. So let me give you a few scriptures about the word of God itself and its staying power. John 1, 1. Personally, I think this is the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isaiah 11. So shall my Word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. It will not return to me void. Boy, I should want to know what His Word says if there's a promise like that about itself. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and the joints of the moral, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. How many times has the word of God by itself, no preacher involved, no devotional book, no commentator, no, no sermon preaching, but just the word of God spoken to your heart, and changed something about your life or strengthened something in your life. The word of God is powerful. It's quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. When we read, search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. 
What a great opportunity for us to just let the Word of God do what it's supposed to do. And then Paul, writing to his protege Timothy, says, All Scripture is given by God's inspiration, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is so powerful and so true that the Word of God remains. The Word of God remained throughout all of church history. We want this Word to remain in us, right? It's remained in the church. We want it to remain in us. So what I want to do tonight is read a passage of Scripture that I think is important. Little simple things that really puts the Word of God in you. And then Romans 8 is something we should just know all the time. So I'll read it and you follow along. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enemy with God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. But in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life in your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I like to throw the word righteous in there. We are righteous children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, righteous children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, 
But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, for those who are the called according to, pos- to, to, to his purpose. <laughs> Which are the most important words? We know, or all things, or work together for good. Yeah, they're all, they're all important. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercessions for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril, or sword? As is written, For your sake we are all killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.